I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. We're talking about the subjects related to the church that no one usually talks about. One of those subjects is spiritual abuse. I'm excited about this episode because it deals with the experience of spiritual abuse. What's tricky about understanding spiritual abuse is a lot of the examples smack of familiar dysfunction you might experience in any family or working in any organization. For example, and this is a real life example, someone might be trying to explain how a spiritual leader was manipulative and abusive. Some of that leader's behavior might sound like, quote, normal dysfunction, and it might be easy for us to resonate, and when we do, we immediately dismiss the very dark and sinister parts of the story by latching onto the parts that sound familiar. There are two problems with this. First, we should never normalize dysfunction. It's never okay for a boss to mistreat an employee, no matter how common it is. It's never okay for a parent to maliciously manipulate their child no matter how common it is. Second, the insidiousness of spiritual abuse is a lot of the, quote, normal behaviors are very often a smokescreen for the dark and sinister realm of real, long-lasting damage. So, I'm going to ask you to do something while listening to this episode. If you hear something that sounds familiar, I invite you to ask yourself, If this behavior sounds familiar, is it possible I actually have experienced spiritual abuse or some kind of abuse in a current or previous context? Next, if you determine that you didn't experience abuse, I invite you to ask yourself, is this behavior I'm recognizing as dysfunctional or inappropriate causing me to ignore the real depths of the damage caused? Finally, I want to ask you to pay attention to the emotion. While the experiences may be unfamiliar, the pain and the damage is very real, even if you don't fully understand what caused it. Today, I get to interview my sister, Julie Spearing, current resident of Atlanta, Georgia, and also one of my favorite people in the whole world. If you haven't listened to episode eight, Spiritual Abuse, The System, where I interview my brother, Caleb, I encourage you to maybe listen to that episode first. How has the church played a role in your in your healing journey? I guess like what role? Yeah, I have negative experiences with the church, and I have positive experiences with the church. But ultimately, I would say that in my mind, the church isn't necessarily the building; it's the people that make up Christ's body, and my biggest supporter when I was going through my shit storm in college was a beautiful mentor who I met because I was visiting churches. I didn't end up going to her church, but when I went to, I visited one church, I met this lady who uh, ran the college ministry and she pursued me and would have dreams about me and would pray for me. And I rejected her 
so many times. We laugh about it now because I still talk to her. But she did what I thought the church should do when they get pricked by the Holy Spirit because I was struggling during this time. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with um, suicide. I wanted to end my life. And this was kind of like the last resort for me. It was like, let me try to find people that love me because I did not feel loved and did not feel like any, I did not feel like anyone would care if I died. So this was kind of like my Hail Mary, but she did what I thought the church should do. And I honestly, the church that I ended up going to, I became very close with the associate pastor and their family was incredible. But like, it was more, and I also went to counseling at this church and got a lot of good help from a male counselor. And he was very influential in getting me to break free from my dad. And that was kind of like my healing process was for my mentor and that counselor. And those both came from a church setting, but it wasn't like a church body. The church body like the whole was, system wasn't yeah. necessarily helping you. It was more individual here, individual here. Yes, yes. I do know that when I went to my first church in the Midwest, I had five people ask me out to lunch my very first day. Wow. I had never experienced that before. I sat alone probably for the first year in my college experience with a bunch of people my age. And this was like the first time that I sat alone and people came up to me and were like, you're new. Let's go to lunch. Let's, let's hang out. And I was just like, what? This happens? It was like the coolest thing ever. So how have you experienced people receiving your story? I think that I've gotten better at telling my story. <laughs> so it's not so shocking when I wreck the first. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a before and after. Give me a before and after. Yeah. So the first time that I like admitted that I was from an abusive household when I was my first year at Auburn and I had gone to a campus ministry called crew and I joined a small group and I was very alone in all of this. And I'm, I'm very proud of myself for doing these things. It's like, I went to crew by myself. I signed up for the small group, didn't know anyone, went to the small group by myself. I went to a retreat with crew by myself and met people there but I was like I'm gonna meet people and I'm gonna try to this out and I'm gonna find friends and so all the stuff I did by myself and so I show up at this small group by myself and all the girls are in the store are in sororities together and so they're kind of like all kind of know each other and I didn't tell my story like on the first time that I went to this small group but it was just like towards the middle of the semester and we were kind of you go to that awkward time in small groups where people are asking for prayer requests and you're not a hundred percent sure if anyone's actually ever going to pray for you after you share something. And most of this stuff is no, no prayers too small, but it was never like deep prayers. It was just like, um, this final coming up and it's going to be really hard. And like, yeah, cool. Like I'll, I will, I mean, I prayed for people, but it's like, are you actually going to pray for me? 
So I was like, all right, full send. I'm really hurting. And this was kind of like in deep of me and my depression and stuff. And so this was not a good experience to happen when you're like wanting to kill yourself. But they literally wanting to kill yourself, literally wanting to kill yourself. And they didn't know. They had no idea where I was coming from. But I was like, all right, let's just tell and see if they actually pray for me. And so I kind of told my story and I was sobbing like ugly tears heaving sobbing the girls just stared at me like I was a foreign object they didn't know what to do and I always say like in their defense there it's a student-run small group they're 22 years old 21 years old I was 20 at the time and this girl's in your small group and she's sobbing saying she comes from an abusive household and I don't think I admitted suicide I think the first time I admitted suicide was to you Catherine when I was in Mexico yeah yeah and but I told them that I was struggling and stuff and their response was I'll pray for you and the conversation was over and they moved on to the next girl and her prayer request about her final that was coming up that she needed prayer for. It hurt Ouch. so bad. And I felt so vulnerable, and then I was just rejected hardcore. So I actually ended up sharing my story again in another small group that I was in in college, and I ended up actually getting a girl who had the similar story to me of, and we ended up becoming really good friends and meeting. We met weekly. She was a little bit younger than me. And she was just like so thankful that I had shared my story. And she had never shared her story. But just like it was the first time that I felt like, okay, I'm sharing my story. And it's actually hitting a place where it needs to hit and allowing someone to come forward and talk about their pain. So that was beautiful to be able to like be in. Honestly, my mentor in Auburn helped me get my testimony down to where it wasn't like, it was shocking, but I could say it without sobbing. I'm struck by two things. First, you had a horrible experience when you did share your story. When you were telling <laughs> that story, like my stomach is like cringing. My heart feels like it's like got an ice pick in it because I, I relate so much and then I'm also just just so grieved that you were in this place and and it's a it's such a tragic story that I think a lot of people can relate with but what I'm struck by is that you took the risk again <laughs> you did it again I most people would be like fuck that I am never sharing my story again if that's how people react I will never share my story again. Just yeah. the fact that you would take a risk to share it again. And I think uh, it's so hard because you could have gotten the same reaction. You're, you're really good. And then I also was struck by the fact that you, you learn and grew in how to tell your story. And I yeah. think that that's a key thing for survivors of abuse is a learning your audience like who who am i telling this story to right now is it someone who's going to receive it well is it someone who's not going to believe me is it someone who 
who maybe needs to hear it and, and mm -hmm. learning how to discern who is, who am I talking to right now? And then also learning which parts do I share in this context and which parts do I not share? And, mm. and that is a growth process. It's not something that you can just read a book or you can, you mm -hmm. know, talk to one person and boom, done, you figured it out. Like you had to practice. Yes. That. And I think that that's a part of the recovery process. Yes. Is knowing your story well enough to know how it's going to be received by others. Yeah, to know your audience and to know, like, are they asking that question to get to know you because they care about you? Or are they just, like, asking it as, like, a filler question? What are some good things people have told you in grief or in pain? I honestly, since I relate to humor so much, appreciate when people can make me laugh. Like, when people say... I'll pray for you and how it kind of just like ends the conversation. I would much prefer humor in a sense of like cussing, like, wow, he's a, he's a bitch or wow, what an asshole or like get, get mad with me. Like <laughs> don't just stare at me blankly or I'll pray for you and then walk away or, <laughs> or I'm like, okay, and I open my hands like, all right, let's go right now. I mean, we can approach Jesus anytime we want to. So let's go. Come on. And they're like, oh, I meant like, never. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I know exactly what you meant, bitch. So like, let's do it right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so needed. It's so <laughs> So, church. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, based on, like, Caleb's episode and stuff, what were, was there anything that, like, popped into your head that you were like, oh, I really want to share that story, and... Honestly, it was good just hearing Caleb's side of, like, how, I know we're moving towards family now, he, as a male in our family, and what he saw happening and how he felt. Because for me, I was a female. And so when certain things were expected out of me, I didn't look at that and be like, oh, you're not doing the dishes. You're not. Uh, you don't clear your plate. You don't cook anything ever. I remember like it being the worst thing in the world when mom would leave town because like, I guess I just didn't think that I was capable of making his own meals because we'd have to get up and cook him breakfast because mom wasn't there to do it. And since I was told that was my duty, it wasn't like weird when dad didn't do it for himself. It was always just like, oh, I'm the female. This is what I was created to do. And so hearing his like side of it of like, oh, I'm the male and my male father is not doing it, so why should I be doing it? I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I do remember one story of, I was riding in the car and I'm pretty sure it was Sherry, Caleb and myself and dad in the car. And dad specifically said, Caleb, when you get a job one day, make sure you buy a house that's in the East and your job is in the West because that way, when you're going to work in the morning, you drive 
away from the sun. And then when you go home from work, you're away from the sun because the sun's really bright in the morning. Didn't, didn't say Sherry or Julie. Like he specifically said Caleb's name and was like, in a sense of like assuming that me and Sherry were not going to have jobs one day. We're not going to work outside the home. It was just kind of like the norm. And I always thought that was weird because I always had a desire to go to college. I always had a desire to have a career, but I never thought, I literally still think, no, I don't still think this to this day, but I still struggle with this, that I'm going to have to choose marriage over a career. Like that is a fear that it's just like, you can't have both. Like, because if you work outside the home as a mom, you're wrong. And that's what I was taught growing up. And like, is that even possible? So we'll see. Jury's still out. <laughs> How did that land on you just in your ability to even choose a career? Knowing that you were ingrained with this mindset of you're not supposed to because you're a woman. Honestly, it all didn't happen at once. It was a slow process. It started in when I wanted to get a job when I was 18. Because I was doing small odds and ends jobs, but I knew that like I needed to have some sort of financial independence from dad. And so it was like, okay, let's start with the job. I knew that I wanted to go to school and I knew I wanted to do something but I had no idea what, but every decision I made, I justified to dad like I was getting married. So when I started classes, I was going for their nursing program and I would justify to dad because he didn't want me to go to college. He did not want, he didn't think that was like a wise use of my money if I wasn't going to use it. Like, why would anyone go to college if you're never gonna use your degree because you're not gonna work outside the home? And so I would be like, okay, I'm gonna be a nurse because if my kids fall out of the tree and scrape their knee or have an allergic reaction, I'm gonna be a nurse. So I'm gonna know what to do if they get hurt. And then I didn't wanna do nursing anymore, but I wanted to be a special ed teacher. And so I was like, okay, dad, I'm going to go to Auburn. And even though you don't agree with it, I mean, I didn't say this to him, but like, I really want to go to Auburn and I want to get my teacher's degree because someday homeschooling might be outlawed and I'm going to be able to homeschool my kid. And everything up to that point, I was justifying because I needed permission to get to the next level that I wanted to get to. And then once I got to college, that's when things started to crumble with the system. It was interesting because Caleb had the same rules when he went away to college that I had, which is interesting that he got those same rules because I was also told the same rules, but one was added. If you yes. haven't listened to episodes. If you haven't listened to the podcast, so good. Go listen to it. Amazing. But he was given three trump cards and mine were, or two. And I was given three when I left for college. And it was one, if you make any big financial decision, I needed his approval on. If I was going to leave the city of Auburn, I needed his approval. 
and three, this opens up another can of worms, which, which we probably won't get into, but I was not allowed to communicate with my sister who had married a man that my dad did not approve of. I was always in the habit of saying I would do something because Caleb straight up told daddy wasn't going to listen to him. I straight up said, sure, whatever you say, and then did the exact opposite. Like, I just, I just needed to get out. And I knew that if I rocked the boat anyway, I don't know if I was strong enough to actually go and do what I was supposed to do. And I was in Auburn. I was accepted. I had signed a lease for a rooming situation. I was so close. And I was like, I just got to get out of here. I just got to do it. And I, will, I would have agreed to anything at that point. Like, I, I agreed to a lot of things I shouldn't have when I left. But I was like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do whatever I want to do once I get out. So once I got to Auburn, I liked special education, but I found something that I wanted. I knew I wanted to go back to the medical field. And so I changed my majors once I got to Auburn. Didn't consult dad. Didn't. I was just like, okay, we're done. Like, I'm going to actually do what I want to do. And you were paying for school yourself. Yes. Yes. I did pay for school myself. I was still on their insurance and he did give me, I think it was a hundred dollars a month or something to contribute to mine. But as soon as I said, I, yeah, as soon as I told them that I was talking to Nathan and Lauren again, they, they cut all that off. So so they they took away your hundred dollar allowance a month, which is not that much. That's twenty five dollars a week, and yeah. said we're not giving this to you because you're speaking to your sister. Yeah, and I even it's like crazy how things were used as a manipulation tool, and that was his last manipulation tool because I remember wanting to buy my own car because we had had a family car that was for the girls and I got into a fight with dad one time when I ran away from home and I know I cannot confirm this I was told by someone in our family that dad had gone and unplugged the battery from the car so that I couldn't run away with the car I know I, I didn't take the car because I knew that it was his and it was going to be being like, you stole my car. So I just like left and ran to the church down the street and called Corey. But someone told me that he had unplugged the battery so that I couldn't get away if I wanted to take the car. It's so fucked up. It's like, I know my daughter's going to run. I know she's upset. Instead of what can I do to help my daughter and help calm her down and take responsibility for the fact that I, I have contributed to her being this upset. No, how can I trap her? And that was always the, that was always the default was like, yeah. let me rein you in and get you under control. And then we can talk about this. Yes. Yes. It was always, it was always, always stuff on his terms. It's like funny to me because in a sense, I feel very like this kind of stuff. I mean, dad knows, I don't know hundred percent know if he would admit that he knows, but like I've said 
mo I most or all of this stuff to his face and recently and I even think I don't even know like if he if he even listens to this if he would actually like admit that any of this ever happened I'm glad that you brought it up because I actually got an email today about Caleb's episode where someone was like have you have you talked to your parents about these things I was like oh hell yes yes they have had so many conversations so many letters at least once from every child a letter or something yes and people outside of the family speaking to them they should be well aware and it's like honestly the most recent encounter that i had with my dad was one of the most freeing in a sense of just like you kind of forget you forget the fight when you walk away from it and you wash your hands of it and you're like, you are no longer my problem. I cannot change you. The only thing I can do is worry about myself. You forget that you said anything and you almost are like, Oh, well maybe they just don't know. Cause like, it's been a while since I've said anything and I've kind of been removed from the situation. And yeah, I hear my sister or my brothers are still like dealing with stuff but he hasn't really messed with me in a long time maybe he just doesn't remember and then he does something and you're like okay nothing yeah okay nothing nothing's changed oh let me tell you let me tell you how you hurt me how you abused me and then you tell me how I'm going to reap serious consequences for my actions and you're like, okay, nothing's changed. That's the loop. I tell yeah. you, you have hurt me in this way. And this is what you have done to hurt me and to cause this distance. And then your response to that is to tell me that I am in sin or I am yes. not serving God or I'm disregarding the Bible. And then yes. God is going to punish me because yes. I am not in relationship with you. Yep. It's a pretty, it's a pretty sick cycle, but it's also like an out of body experience when you kind of are like, oh, I'm just going to tell you like it is. Oh, you're still caught up in the same thing that I, that you would try to get me with when I was 18 years old. Interesting. Same tactics. Okay. Well, you can have fun with that. I'm going to take my Honda Accord that doesn't start to get out of your house. <laughs> Please tell that story if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the car the car is having a theme here. We're having a theme. It is. Oh my gosh, my sweet three vehicle. I am very thankful for it. But it's also you never know. You just never know. Kinda like your family. You just never know. Yeah. So I this is just like also a weird story to tell out loud because uh, it's like one of my most freeing, like, wow, I'm an amazing, I've come so far. I'm an amazing person. But I asked my dad to help me change my alternator in my car because it won't start because alternator's dead. Because that's and how, old were you? how old were you when this happened? I was 26 years old. This is a couple months ago. Mom actually was like, ask your dad he'd love to help you 
And I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll ask him. And everyone that I talked to were like, you know, your dad's just going to use that against you. You know, you shouldn't ask him to do that. I said, yeah, the only difference is, is he can only use against me what I allow him to use against me. And so everything was fine. We changed the alternator. We took little selfies in the car. And then he, this is when he proceeds to ask me if I would come and like hang out with him more. And um, I'm trying to give the abridged version because it's kind of a long story, but asked me if I would come hang out with him a little bit more because I haven't been around much in the past. And I just feel like I said politely, no, sir. And he said, so you'll use my car and ask me to help you change your alternator, but you won't hang out with me. And this was the first time that I told dad that he was abusive to his face. This is the first time that I said, yes, I cannot do this because you abused me and you abused me all through the 20 years that I lived in your house and I don't trust you. And he basically says that he's abused because I am using him for his stuff. And he was like, you think you're abused? Well, I'm abused. Like, go use my car and you ask for my help, but then you don't give me anything in return. And I was just like, honestly, Dad, I asked for your help because I wanted to see if things were different. And he brought up a couple scripture verses about how I'm supposed to like treat people like I would want to be treated. And I basically was just like, you did the exact same thing you did to me for 20 years. I would do something wrong and you'd spit scripture in my face telling me how I was a horrible person and things haven't changed. And, and I said, this isn't new to you. You know, you've, you have been abusive and have been told this. And he was like, your mom has sat in on all the conversations that I've had with your siblings. And she has never said that I was abusive. And I was like, well, you abuse mom too. And I know because I was abused and I couldn't admit to it when I was abused. But abused people don't really know when they're being abused. And it was honestly so freeing to be able to be that honest. I don't really know. I've stopped trying to figure out why he doesn't listen, especially when at least six of the kids, some sort of beef with him that they've told him about, and he still tries to get control like he did with me in my car, I was able to lay boundaries and lay, being like, I'm not coming over to your house, and this is why. And so he knew. He knew why I would say no to dinner dates and no, because my boundaries is I don't spend time with mom and dad by myself. Um, I have to have another person there with me because stories just change. And even the story changed even with him telling mom, because he didn't tell mom that the conversation happened. He just told mom that I told him that I wasn't going to hang out with him and And so mom was confused. And so it's like, there's so many stories. And I'm like, I got to have a witness because everything always gets twisted and changed. And so 
it was my bad for breaking my rules with being alone with him. But I honestly was trying to figure out if it was almost a test to see if I was strong enough and I was strong enough, but it just because you're strong enough doesn't mean you have to put up with shit. And so that was, have you ever had anyone tell you you're being bitter or why don't you just forgive or anything along those lines when it comes to dad? Yeah. All the time, but I think it mostly came from family members. A lot of times when I told healthy outside individuals, they were just like, oh my gosh, why do you still talk to him? But it was like family members that would be like, oh, you just need to forgive. And like, he's really not that bad. And just like, those are also people who were being abused. Yeah, exactly. But for the most part, people that know my story are just like, are you kidding me? I think, too, like getting out of this situation, because I think another manipulation tool in our family was you, if you shared it to anyone but your parents, you were gossiping. And a lot of my letters that I wrote to dad, I know one of them in particular, I had Lauren, my sister, read over just to make sure it was kind. I wanted her to read over it because I wanted her to make sure it was kind. Like I was being abused and I was worried about being kind. Like I wanted to tell my story to the man that was abusing me and tell him how he was hurting me. So I had her read it to make sure that it made sense and that I was being kind. And, and he started sobbing because I had gossiped and told someone else about the things that he had done to me. Did we talk about the contents of the letter? Not at all. Not at all. It was, I had gossiped and it's like, if I told my story, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gossiping. And is this something and that's a that classic, I think that's a, that's a classic spiritual abusive system tactic is to scare everyone into thinking if you talk to someone outside of the system, then you're gossiping. And gossip is a real, quote, sin in the Bible. So very simple manipulation tool. And then the fact that you wrote them, him this heartfelt letter that you were so concerned about being kind as you were confronting him. And then all he talked about, all he focused on was how you did something wrong by gossiping. Mm. Quote gossiping. Very yeah. classic spiritually abusive system manipulation tool. Yes. Very, it's very useful. It's, it works. It worked. Honestly, it was, it, it worked. And the fact that like, I one time told him one time, I was just like, dad, I'm scared of you. And he was like, well, that's good because that means you won't mess up and do anything wrong. It's, it's healthy to be afraid of someone. And it's like, red flag. But I was like, oh, well, you're right, because I don't want to mess up. And it worked. 
and worked mm -hmm. for a long time. And so mm -hmm. coming back to like me telling my testimony when I got okay with telling it and it wasn't considered gossip and this is a part of my story and it's almost like he wanted us to think it was gossip because he didn't want a light to shine on the abuse. Yeah, and man. Keep, keep you and close. They don't. Like, that is usually a huge number one objective is to make sure that no one no one knows keep it as quiet as possible and use yeah. every possible means to keep it from from having light shed on it which is why i'm very proud of you and for and caleb because i mean as your sister i know how terrifying it is to, yeah. to admit to put the word abuse alongside our family by miracle we somehow survived but i think that i still struggle in a sense, I know that it was abuse, and I know, like, physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, it was all there, but I feel like I only get support from some people when I talk about the physical abuse. I think it's a lot harder to prove. It's he said, she said, I don't see any scars on your body, and it wasn't physical, because physical was like... It's kind of like you can't necessarily pinpoint them as easily as someone who's like physically, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in saying that. but it's I don't think like, that you are. And I, I think that I've heard that as I've been interacting with people who come out of spiritual abusive environments, a lot of times I will hear them say, I wish the pastor would have raped up someone because yeah. everyone thinks that's wrong but because he was spiritually abusive you just go around and around and around and people look at you like you have three heads you yeah. do not understand the magnitude of the damage which is why i think it's your story is very important because you you can you can reveal exactly what happened and why it was wrong and then you can also show the damage. Like you have damage to show for it. Yeah. So you have depression and I almost committed suicide and fear and wrestling with all of these horrible messages that you received. I remember going to a, like the very first day I was in Auburn, I went and saw, I think it was called We Are the Millers. Oh, R rated. R-rated. I think there might be some masturbation in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already making this an explicit episode, don't worry. Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, but it was like, I was 20 years old when I went to Auburn, and I, my roommates wanted to go see that movie. And I remember thinking in my head, do I call dad and ask permission? And I remember thinking in the movie, what if I, like, die and it was like worst case scenario, like God was going to punish me drastically. And then like that February, I like went and got my belly button pierced or something. And I was like, I'm getting myself out of this stupid mentality that if I do something that my dad doesn't approve of, which I'd already gone to Auburn, didn't necessarily approve of that and was doing my own thing. And it was like, I got to slowly rip off these walls that I have that like 
by going to an R-rated movie and getting a belly button ring. Yes, isn't that so sad? But that was what I needed. And when when I wanted to go to Auburn, we were driving on the way to Auburn, his mom and dad and myself. And he had his Bible open and he was just just drilling me with scripture verses about how I was sinning because I wanted to go to Auburn. And I was sobbing in the Wendy's bathroom. He's in the car telling me I am literally essentially going to hell because I want to get a college degree. Uh, I'm so proud of you. I am so happy for how far you've come and how the journey's not over. Yeah, I guess I'm just like, wow. That's really all I can think. Wow. But it's like crazy, Catherine, because you played such a big role in even like hearing Caleb's story and his podcast and how you were the first person that he told about his sexual abuse. And yeah, I didn't know about that. I didn't know. Yeah. That. I, I was shocked to hear that. I was like, I cannot believe there was no one else. Yeah. Before this. I'm just. Well, that's how I felt about my suicide stuff. Like you were the first person I told about my suicide stuff. And like, even though you were about my age, maybe when you left mom and dad's house, you went to college and were doing your own thing. And I like saw that and I was like, okay, I can do my own thing. I mean, there's eight years between us mm-hmm. it's almost sad because i got out when i was 20 because you did something and then i felt safe enough to tell you that i was struggling with i think you're really the only one that did things like crazy drastic going to college like go to college super, yeah super drastic super crazy and drastic and it's just like you kind of set a bomb in our family in a sense because you got your college degree thanks for saying that i am honored to be a carrier of your story and a receiver of it and thank you for collaborating with me by coming on here and being vulnerable and i'm like so lucky that i get to be your sister while listening be so jealous podcast supports TearsOfEden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you know someone who might benefit from the material of the podcast or the website, feel free to share it with them. And when you subscribe to the mailing list of TearsOfEden.org, I'll send you access to a 10-minute mindfulness meditation. Finally, I want to invite you to take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. I'll see you next time.